You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Matthew. Here's Nate. Well, in Matthew chapter 6, we are continuing on in Jesus' kingdom manifesto. The Gospel of Matthew, of course, is presenting Jesus as the king. And here in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, we have a description from the king where he lays out what life in his kingdom is to look like. And of course, reminding you of Matthew 5, verse 3, Entrance into the kingdom occurs in this way. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The first step is to realize the poverty of heart. This opens a man or a woman up to the gospel message. They receive Christ and they become children of God. They become participants in the kingdom of God. And so Jesus in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is describing what citizenship in his kingdom is to look like. Now, ultimately, this lifestyle where the thoughts and motives and intentions of our hearts are perfectly pure in all ways, ultimately, this kingdom is yet future. But still, in the here and now for the church, the Sermon on the Mount provides for us a wonderful directive on how to live life in this kingdom that Christ has given to us. Now, Matthew chapter 6, we're going to discover the spiritual life of his children. He says in verse 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Now, one of the first things I should mention is simply that this little section is focused quite often upon reward. This first verse isn't the only time that we're going to see this mentioned. The good works that we do, he speaks of the reward from our Father who is in heaven. And I just mention that because it should be noted that all throughout Scripture, God's servants have served him with a reward in mind. Paul the Apostle is probably one of the greatest, if not the greatest, example of this. And that he was a man who was running his race, wanting to finish his course, wanting to cast aside every weight of sin, specifically so that he might receive the reward that God had for him. His longing was very simple. On that day of judgment for his life, he longed to have as many of his works as possible pass through the fire of judgment and bring him great reward for all of eternity. So in scripture, it's a very common thing for God's servants to long for reward. But what Jesus says here in verse 1 is he says, listen, if you practice your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, in other words, you want people to notice the good things that you have done, you are doing them specifically so that people will see that you are doing them. Jesus says, well, you have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. In other words, you've already received your reward. Your reward is that people have seen you and given you whatever recognition it was that you were longing for. You received it 
right then and there. And it is always a shame when someone attempts to serve the Lord with the simple motive of being seen by others. With the simple motive of pleasing perhaps a pastor or pleasing a wife or pleasing a group of people. If your motivation for serving others, if your motivation for ministering to others is so that others might see you and think highly of you, well then, first of all, your reward from the Father is nothing. Jesus says you have no reward from your Father in heaven. But might I also caution you that the reward here on earth isn't all that wonderful either. In other words, if you are expecting your reward to be that people have seen what you've done and and worship and adore you for the great things that you've done, well, then you'll probably be greatly disappointed. (laughs) And so uh, Jesus gives a wonderful warning. When we practice our good works or our righteousness before other people, we are not to do it in order to be seen by them. Now, this doesn't mean that we can't do good works in front of other people. No, we would expect that many of the good things we do would be done in front of others, but not with the motivation in the heart. That's what Jesus is dealing with, that desires to be seen. Thus, verse 2, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. And so Jesus then gives this example, and it's a rather ridiculous example, but apparently in that era, there were those who would actually operate in this kind of way, that they would actually blow a trumpet. We're not sure if anyone actually did this or not, but you can imagine how ridiculous this would seem to any discerning observer. You know, a guy walks down the street, he sees someone who's in poverty, he reaches into his pocket to give a gift, but before he gives the gift, he blows a trumpet out loud so that everyone stops and looks in his direction. Upon seeing the man with the trumpet in his hand, he then takes out his money with everybody watching and gives it to the person who is in a place of poverty. Jesus says, you know, that person, that person who self-announces the things that they've done, that person who longs for other people to know all about their gift and their sacrifice, that person actually has already received their reward. Jesus says, no, when you, as my followers, when you do a good work, when you give to the poor in this particular example, he says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Now, Obviously, there's no way to actually make this happen. It's not like Jesus thinks that the left hand has a consciousness and the right hand has its own consciousness. He understands how the human body works and that if you're giving something with your right hand, then, of course, you're conscious of it through and through. But you can understand just sort of the metaphor. It's it's the idea of don't broadcast it. In other words, let it be such a quiet thing 
that it's your other hand doesn't even really know about it. It's just so quiet, so reserved. Jesus says there in verse 4, he says, Your father who sees in secret, he will reward you openly. He sees in secret and he will reward you. Just a wonderful truth from Jesus. And it is interesting when you're in a church or in a setting or in some kind of nonprofit organization where much is made of public donations. You know, and oftentimes in fundraising and all of that, people will make these huge deals about the big givers and the plaque that you can receive and the notoriety that you would gather as a result of your giving. And so often people will even play on that fleshly desire that people have to be noticed. And so often they'll play on that fleshly desire in order to get people to give or to serve or whatever it might be. Now, I, from time to time as a pastor, I would like to point out those servants in the church who have really done a wonderful job, have gone above and beyond. I love to give them some public recognition. And from time to time, you'll hear someone say, don't steal my reward. You know, as if to say, if anybody ever hears about your labor of love or your good work or your giving, if anyone ever hears about it, then all of the sudden your reward is taken away and the Father will no longer reward you. No, I don't think that's the way that it works. It's saying here that if the motivation that that you have operated in is so that everyone would see, if that was your motivation, then there is no reward for you. But if it becomes public or somehow someone else brings it up or, or whatever that might be, then as long as you're not feeling the reward as a result of being known, then the Father will still reward you as his child. Now, verse 5, Jesus said, And when you pray, he moves on to not just acts of service and good works, but he says, When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. At first, he holds out the hypocrites, you know, those who would actually stand on the street corners and pray these long prayers, stand there just sort of gathering attention. And, you know, in the synagogue, this is the guy who needed to stand up to pray all the time and give these long prayers. And everyone would think, oh, how spiritual he is. Look how deep this man is. Or standing on a street corner, just stopping and praying in that moment as if to communicate to everyone, I'm so holy and in tune with God that I can't even walk down the street without stopping to have a moment of prayer. Look at my holiness. Look at my righteousness. And it's amazing that people would actually behave in this kind of way. You know, the thing I've discovered about this kind of person, who perhaps in a prayer meeting or whatever, they just need to pray such long prayers. They've got to lay it all out. The thing that I've discovered is that for the most part, I don't think those people even know how to pray. It's just that this is their one time that they actually are going to attempt a prayer. And what happens to this kind of person is that they never find the strength to pray alone. 
They can't pray in solitude. They've got to pray with other people watching because it's the only motivation they have for being spiritual at all. And again, Jesus is going back to the motivation. Are you motivated to be spiritual because of the view of other people? Or are you motivated to be spiritual and to seek God because you love God? And Jesus said in verse 6, he says, But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And he tells his followers, he says, Listen, for you, this is what it's going to be like. When you pray, you go into your room, your prayer closet, so to speak. You shut the door and you pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret, he will reward you. The idea is of an open reward. He will reward you in an open kind of sense. And so here for us as God's children, it's a different thing altogether. We go into our prayer closets where we personally and privately experience the Lord. Now, is this telling us that we can never pray in public? No, not at all. Jesus himself prayed public prayers from time to time. Is this telling us that we can never pray in a group with other people? No, not at all. Jesus himself told us that we're to agree together here on earth. And in Acts chapter 1 and 2, we see the early church beginning in a prayer meeting with other people. And so we know that we're called to pray with others. We know that there will be times that we pray in public, but it's the motivation of the heart. The norm for a Christian is silent solitude before the Lord. We're not doing it to be seen by others, but there's this heart that desires to cry out to God. And as we cry out to God, I love this about prayer. He says, your father who sees in secret will reward you. This is what happens in prayer. You know, I know for me in my life, I've seen this on countless days within my own life. Whether it's the positive illustration. You know, a day that I woke up early in the morning and opened the word of God and poured out my heart before the Lord. My mind and my heart were undistracted before the Lord and I was asking for his grace and his strength. And after reading his word and hearing him by his spirit speak to my heart, I then began to cry out to him and plead and intercede and lay my heart out before him. And then to go throughout a day after experiencing that and to have wisdom and to have discernment and to have discipline in the tasks of the day, and to just have good success in general in the things that I'm doing throughout that day. And to know that this is an open reward for private prayer in one sense. It's very rewarding, so to speak, to pray. Not that you're earning anything, but but the Father, He gets behind your life. And then on the other hand, there have been so many times where I've seen the opposite the negative illustration where I've been rushed and I haven't been still before the Lord and I've let my mind wander and become distracted and I've decided to look at and check email rather than cry out to God in prayer. And, you know, the Lord loves me. The Lord cares for me. I've done nothing to lose my position and standing in him, but it's less of a rewarding thing. 
and then to go throughout the day without that power and without that strength and without the real weight of the Spirit upon my life. It's just a different experience altogether. And so there is power in prayer. In verse 7, he says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. I love this in particular about prayer. Jesus says to his disciples, Listen, when you pray, you don't need to heap up all of these empty phrases or these vain repetitions like the Gentiles or like the heathen do. And so he rebukes this empty chatter in prayer. He says, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. (laughs) This isn't to say, first of all, that repetition in prayer is forbidden. Jesus repeated prayers three times in the Garden of Gethsemane. He cried out, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but your will be done. Paul the Apostle prayed for the same thing, the removal of the thorn in the flesh, three times. And so repetition in prayer is not necessarily the negative. There are many examples of continually crying out to God over the same thing. Jesus actually encouraged this kind of behavior to consistently cry out to God. But this is a vain repetition, just many words flowery speech and repeated over and over again without heart, without meaning, you know, saying, oh Lord, saying we worship you, saying we're thankful, talking of his glory, but really not from the heart at all. You know, for me, when I pray, I personally don't believe that I need to conjure up emotion or have some kind of false zeal or anything like that. I abhor praying in the presence of that kind of false zeal or praying with that kind of false zeal. But on the other hand, when I am praying, I want to watch out for the other extreme of just calling him Lord and thanking him without a real genuine appreciation inside of my heart, without a real earnest perspective that I've got. I want to say, Lord, thank you. You are the God that can bring down the fire from heaven. You can pour out your Holy Spirit. You're the God that created all that is seen. And I I want to have this worshipful, zealous heart before the Lord. But to pray with a vain repetition or just with empty phrases, with your mind totally disconnected from what you're praying, repeating some prayer like it's magic over and over again, this is something the Gentiles, that the heathens do. And so Jesus said, don't pray like that. With those many words, do not be like them. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. And so Jesus is announcing the glory of the father, that he knows what we need even before we ask. And because he knows what we need before we ask, we are to ask. And it's just a wonderful reality. Now in verse 9, he moves on and he says, pray then like this. So he gives his disciples a template for how to pray, an illustration or example on how to pray. Now it's fascinating because many people have taken the Lord's Prayer, this thing that now follows, and they've actually turned it into a vain repetition. Have you ever heard this? Let's pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And it's repeated in this very hollow, empty kind of way. 
As Jesus is saying, pray then like this. He's not saying, hey, you need a prayer? Here it is. Just pray this forever. Now he's giving us a template of prayer, and it begins with our Father in heaven. Now this was a radical concept for the disciples to think of God as a father. This would have been difficult for these men to embrace. They had grown up in Israel. They thought of God as the judge. They thought of God as holy. They thought of God as the giver of the law. They thought of God as the one who brought down thunderings and lightnings upon the mountaintop. But father really wasn't at the top of their list to think of God as their father. But of course, because of the blood of Jesus, this was the relationship and is the relationship that Jesus would introduce and give to his people in his kingdom. God would become the father. And so here he says, you cry out, our father who is in heaven. And so we come to God as our heavenly father. Hebrews tells us that if we're covered by the blood of Christ, we're to come boldly before God to his throne of grace to find grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. There's to be this boldness in coming before our Heavenly Father. Then he says, Hallowed be your name. There's just to be this adoration at the name which indicates the nature, which indicates the character of God. Too often, we come before the Lord with this cavalier heart before him. This real disrespect before the Lord. He is our Father, but we are to understand that his name is holy. The things he does are good. That he is just, and he is right, and he is perfect, and he is pure in all of his ways. We're to have that deep understanding inside of our hearts, the holiness of God. He says, verse 10, he says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now this is a fascinating part of prayer because what I've found so often in prayer meetings is that one of the last things we pray for is for the kingdom of God. But here he says, one of the first things on our lips ought to be his kingdom. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. And lest we think that all he's saying is, hey, uh, at some point, let us go to heaven and enjoy your kingdom there. He says, on earth as it is in heaven. And so there's this desire to enjoy the kingdom of God in the here and now. And this indicates the priority of prayer. The priority of prayer is to lift up and to pray for the kingdom of God. Jesus told his disciples to ask the Lord of the harvest for laborers for the harvest because the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. One of the things we're to pray for in the kingdom of God is for laborers, for workers, men and women who are willing to throw their lives and their backs into the work of God. But praying for the kingdom, praying for church plants, praying for pastors, praying for leaders, praying for ministries, praying for evangelism, praying for Sunday services, praying for the expansion of the gospel, praying for the kingdom of God. Then he says, verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. Now this is 
the part of the prayer where we turn our attention to ourselves and what we have going on. And I love that it's a prayer for daily bread. We're asking for provision for that particular day. Dependence upon God for that particular day. And verse 12, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. This is such an important part of prayer that we would be released from our own sin. Uh, Jesus said to his disciples, he said, you are clean, you get washed once, but you're walking through the world and so I need to wash your feet. And so he who is clean needs only to wash his feet. And as we go through life, if you're in Christ, you are positionally clean before the Father, but you still sin, you still make mistakes, you still fall and falter. And so it's important in prayer to go back to the Lord and to ask for forgiveness of sin practically. But in doing so, we're also asking that he would forgive us as we have forgiven our debtors. In other words, the bitterness of the heart that can so easily creep in against those who have committed sins against us, we are to forgive them as we go to the Father in prayer. And verse 13, another major area of prayer, temptation. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Strengthen us. So often, an inability to stand in the face of temptation is simply a, an indicator that a man or a woman was not strong in their spiritual vitality before the Lord. There's a proverb that says, If you fail in the day of adversity, your strength is small. In other words, your strength is proved when you fail in the day of adversity. So build up your strength in private for that day of adversity. 4 verse 14, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. A major statement from Jesus. In other words, forgiveness for God's children is not an option. We must be a forgiving people. I think at the very nature of a real believer who has been born again, they have been so forgiven that they will naturally desire to forgive others who have sinned against them. But the practical release from God to experience the grace of God, the practical forgiveness that flows from God, to experience that, we cannot hold forgiveness out from others. When you give that forgiveness to others, God is able to practically wash your heart and you'll experience the practical and grace-filled forgiveness of God upon your life. And so the spiritual life of God's children, to cry out to him in private, to pray these wonderful prayers before the Lord, to trust that our Father in heaven sees our need and hears our cry, and to do our good works, not to be seen by man, but to be rewarded by God himself. God bless you, and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.